Thank you, Darla. If you would, please turn your Bibles to Luke chapter 4. Luke chapter 4. Rather than a uh, textual exposition today, um, we're going to take a break for a topical message on the subject of corporate instruction, instruction that we receive together. Uh, Questions are asked, why do we meet as a community? Why do we come together? Obviously, there are numerous reasons for that. We could never exhaust in this short time. Uh, uh, But no purpose for this gathering is more prominent in Scripture than the the reading and teaching of God's Word. So today's kind of a lesson on ecclesiology, a topical message. That is just the study of a properly functioning church as seen in Scripture. The message becomes topical because Luke in this passage He's not exactly teaching us how to do church. He's teaching about Christ and about how he came to his people, how he was rejected. That was why Luke inserted this. Uh, We'll talk about that next week. Yet still we see an illustration here with Christ and how he behaved of a properly functioning functioning gathering. Uh, Still, this illustration will, will help us to understand, combined with other portions of the Bible, uh, why we're here, and that's why it is topical. You know, why don't we just sit at home and read our Bibles at home, and and perhaps you know watch David Jeremiah on television and and gather instruction that way? There are good teachers that we can see. Uh, why do we come together? Why uh, why for corporate instruction? I hope that today those questions will be answered clearly to our hearts and to our minds. That's why I titled this The Prominence of the Pulpit Ministry. It could be titled The Prominent Position of Pulpit Ministry. Many different things. Let's begin by reading Luke chapter 4, verses 14 through 16. There's only three verses. And Jesus returned to Galilee in the power of the Spirit, and news about him spread through all the surrounding district. And he began teaching in their synagogues and was praised by all. And he came to Nazareth where he had been brought up. And as was his custom, he entered the synagogue on the Sabbath and stood up to read. I've made mention on on previous occasions uh, here that personally my, my favorite part, my favorite section of our worship together is the public reading of Scripture. I I simply adore the public reading of Scripture, whether I'm doing the reading or someone else is doing the reading. It's not only an honor, it's very much more than that. The Holy Word of God is the means by which God uses to call people to faith and to strengthen those of us who are already Christian. Through the reading and teaching of God's Word, we are both saved and sanctified uh, this is the reason that Paul tells Timothy, a pastor in Ephesus, and he tells the church along uh, with Timothy, until I come, give attention. The ESV actually translates that, devote yourself. So, until I come, devote yourself to the public reading of Scripture, to exhortation, that is preaching, and to teaching, First Timothy 4.13. It is unfortunate, really, with, with with all the evidence we see in Scripture, that uh, many churches today devote zero time to 
to the reading of God's Word, uh, zero time to the public reading of Scripture. That was not characteristic of ancient Israel, uh, nor of Jesus, nor of the apostles, nor of the early church. Historians and archaeologists agree from ancient literature studying the evidence that ever since that public reading by Ezra that we had earlier in our, in, during our scripture reading, as it was recorded in Nehemiah chapter 8, ever since then, local houses of worship, in Jesus' day they were called synagogues, they have given special attention to the public reading and then teaching or explaining the scriptures. It was a practice that was passed to New Testament churches that were present during biblical times. It is a practice that continues to this day. The origin of the first synagogue uh, remains a bit of a mystery. Scripture doesn't tell us, uh, but author and historian uh, John Cunningham Geike, this would be a man that Charles Spurgeon uh, said in his day, the great preacher, uh, he described him as one of the best religious writers of the age. He was a historian, a writer who stressed that soon after Israel's return from Babylon, when they came back from activity, synagogues were established in Jerusalem and spread all over the land. He writes, In Christ's day there were synagogues everywhere. In Jerusalem alone there gradually arose, according to the Talmud, no fewer than 480 Tiberias, the city, had 13, Damascus 10, and other cities and towns in proportion to their population. There were a lot of synagogues out there. You know, since it was clearly impractical for Israelites to all travel to Jerusalem every week, right, to the temple, to worship together at the temple, because of that, Israelites gathered weekly in local synagogues to hear the scriptures being read and then explained by a qualified teacher, rabbi, or Jewish elder. The layout of the synagogues uh, were arranged generally so that the Hebrew scrolls, the Torah, and the other scrolls of the prophets, uh, and a raised platform sat at the center of the building generally. All seats were facing the speaker from all four sides. Many employed a, a pulpit, as we saw there with, in Nehemiah with Ezra, or a podium, podium not dissimilar to that. Nehemiah records in, in chapter 8, verse 4, that Ezra the scribe stood at a wooden podium which they had made for the purpose. Ezra opened the book in the sight of all the people, and he was standing above the people, and when he opened it, all the people stood up. It means they displayed a reverence for the Word. And now this is where you might come across some pastors today that will insist that biblically Christians have to stand during the reading of the Word. I'm no, by no means opposed to that. that uh, that's a perfectly appropriate practice. But we should also take note that the very next verse in Nehemiah says this, Then Ezra blessed the Lord, the great God, and all the people answered, Amen, Amen, while lifting up their hands. Then they bowed low and worshipped the Lord with their faces to the ground. So it seems evident, actually, that they bowed down to the ground even before the reading of the Word. And I don't know of any church that practices that today. Uh, with all that said, biblically, 
We can tell cover to cover in the Bible. Uh, I don't think it matters a great deal our posture, our position, whether we're standing or sitting, or whether I'm on a high wooden platform, or from behind a plexiglass lectern, or whether I'm just simply out reading uh, from an electronic tablet of sorts. The New Testament, it, it doesn't emphasize an approved posture for the reading of the Word of God, for singing, or for prayer. Folks, that would actually better represent Islam. There's a specific posture you have to adopt. All that said, we can conclude from many passages in the Bible that the reading of and the teaching of the Word of God has always held a very prominent place, a central place among God's people, and that God's people have historically uh, responded to the reading and teaching of the Word with, with a devoted attention, a reverence, a concern about the Word. Nehemiah also records numerous Levites, all of very difficult names, as being present to then translate those Hebrew scriptures into the more common uh, dialect of Aramaic, and then explain or interpret what the text means so that the people who returned from the exile could just make sense of everything. This was a huge assembly of people, folks. Uh, Many were second, even third generation Hebrews who had been living in Babylon for some 70 years uh, you know what happens with that when you come from another country. You lose your dialect. The second generation loses more. The third genera- generation can't even speak the language that their grandparents spoke. So there was a problem with people understanding it. The Bible places no prohibition against faithfully translating uh, the Word of God into all human languages. That's part of the reason we support Kim, Hub- Kim Hibbard, as she's over in India, uh, doing just that, assisting in the translating of the Word of God. It's why Christians refer to written prophecy as the Word of God and not the language of God, right? It is the Word of God. Also among this assembly of God's people, the Scriptures were read publicly. Teachers who were proficient explained so that people can understand what to do. What do we do? How do we respond? It was Jesus, as he returned to Galilee now, after his baptism, after being tempted in the wilderness, after a number of different ministries, we'll see by reading the Gospel of John, uh, he had garnered for himself a reputation. He really had, of being very gifted in explaining God's word. I can imagine he never took it out of context, never added his own opinion to it. He always perfectly uh, represented God's word. He was a great teacher, folks. A great teacher. Verse 15 says he began teaching in their synagogues, and he was praised by all. Praised by all. You You know, of course Jesus came to those synagogues. Of course that's where he came. Synagogues were where God's people congregated to learn and and to hear the word together. Together. The people of God have always historically gathered weekly to be taught together. Openly, from a pulpit. Reading and teaching and singing once a week has always been the standard frequency. It always has. You can strive to hear the Word of God more often, but you can't strive 
to hear the word of God less. We can't avoid the assembling of God's people together and consider ourselves God's people. God's people come together uh, when indwelt by the Holy Spirit of God. You and I naturally, I'd say supernaturally, long to come together, long to join and share the rejoicing of what God's work is doing. Uh, Come together as spirit indwelt Christians to worship Christ with one voice together. Together. What we experience here together on Sundays, it's a microcosm or it's a a small picture of what we're going to experience together in heaven. Revelation 5 verse 11 describes that. Notice how the word voice here is in the singular. And it is in the original language too. It is in the singular. Then I looked, John the Apostle says, and I heard the voice of many angels around the throne and the living creatures and elders. And the number of them was myriads of myriads and thousands of thousands saying with a loud voice. He didn't say with many loud voices. One loud voice. Worthy is the Lamb that was slain to receive power and riches and wisdom and might and honor and glory and blessing. And every created thing which is in heaven and on the earth and under the earth and on the sea and all things in them I heard saying, To him who sits on the throne and to the Lamb be blessing and honor and glory and dominion forever and ever. It's worship. We worship together. We worship with one voice. Scripture gives no confidence that that we're Christian if we don't have a desire to come together. No confidence whatsoever if you don't want to join God's people in worship of the Lamb. 1 John 3.14 tells us, We know that we have passed out of death and into life because we love the brethren. We just love coming together with God's people. During the Old Testament period, due to legal requirements of the law, God's people assembled on the Sabbath, which was, of course, Saturday, we know. After Christ's resurrection on that first Sunday morn, God's people have historically assembled on what the apostles deemed the Lord's Day. The Lord's Day. That is Sunday, the day which He was raised. I don't have time to go into detail, but we as Christians were not subject to the law or to Sabbatarian worship. Believers under the new covenant from Christ are are not required to worship on Saturday. Christ kept the Mosaic law on our behalf so that we are set free from what the apostles called a yoke of slavery. A yoke of slavery. That's why Paul tells the church in Colossae, let no one judge you by a Sabbath day. That's in Colossians 2.16, Galatians 4.10, and Romans 14.5. We're not judging uh, according to a particular Sabbath day. That, that is why Seventh-day Adventists uh, are mistaken. They're mistaken. We do not have to worship on Saturday. For us, the Sabbath also has never been translated to Sunday. It's never been transferred to Sunday. That is folklore. You'll hear that uh, brought up about Emperor Constantine. That uh, later when he came on, that he ordered it, that that was a command of the Roman Empire, and by Christians worshiping on Sunday, that now you're just following a command of a 
basically a, a, a Roman conqueror. That's not why we come together on Sunday. We aren't Sabbath keepers nor uh, tenant, uh, keepers of the tenets of the Mosaic law that was given to Israel at Sinai. Christians live under God's grace. God's grace. Yet for the vast majority of Christendom, through the history of Christendom, the pattern has always been that we worship on what the Apostle Paul John or Apostle uh, John calls the Lord's Day. The Lord's Day. That's what's seen in Scripture over and over again. It is the day of Christ's resurrection. It is Sunday. The Apostle Paul gives ample evidence of early Christians typically gathering on the first day of the week. You can see that in 1 Corinthians 16, verse 2. But we're not under the law. We're not under the law. We're under grace. So a large church has a lot of people and a lot of reach. Um, Are they permitted to accommodate shift workers? Other people who can't be there on Sunday, are they allowed to have an additional worship service on Friday night? Sure. There's no Sabbath that they're violating. Scripture doesn't prohibit such assemblies to come together with, God, uh, with God's people. With all that said, with us here, with this particular church, with Port St. Lucie Bible Church, we assemble on Sunday mornings. That's when we come together. I can give lots of reasons of why I think Sunday is best. Cultural issues, children's school calendars, days of the week they're off, a common shared uh, day off of rest, all kinds of reasons I could give uh, to defend why I think Sunday's best. That's a different sermon for a different day. Our weekly meeting here is on Sundays. Scripture tells us in Hebrews 10.24, Let us consider how to stimulate one another to love and good deeds, not forsaking the assembly of ourselves together, as is the habit of some, but encouraging one another, and all the more as you see the day drawing near. That is the day of Christ's return. Um, Folks, he says to come together for the encouragement of one another, for the uh, strengthening of one another, to stimulate one another. I got to tell you, your presence here, you may not think this, your presence is encouraging. It's not just encouraging to me or Pastor Weiler. Your presence here is encouraging to the people sitting next to you. You being here is a service to the body of Christ. It is, a, it is a blessing on the body of Christ. It is giving of yourself. You're going to be thankful probably to hear this isn't a message about skipping church. It's not. I won't warn you when I give that one either. But corporate worship and instruction is the required biblical norm. It is. It's the biblical norm. There arise occasions for vacations. Obviously, we all take those. Family reunions, medical conditions, work schedules often conflict. But to habitually forsake the assembling of God's people together and to prioritize things other than the worship of the Lamb who's sitting on the throne, to prioritize other things is sin. It is sin. Whether it is leisure or a quest for entertainment or just plain old-fashioned laziness, whatever it is. 
God's people assemble for worship, mutual encouragement, the public reading and teaching of Scripture. Assembling with God's people was Jesus' long-held custom. It was. He incorporated this custom into his public ministry. Jesus read Scripture and taught publicly in the synagogues for all to hear. Uh, By the way, the Apostle Paul also embraced this as his custom according to Acts 17, verse 2. And in verse 16 of Luke 4, we see Jesus came to Nazareth where he had been brought up. This is where he lived as a boy. And as was his custom, he entered the synagogue on the Sabbath. Whether as a boy, whether as a man, uh, while in his hometown, while traveling out of town, while working with, with the supporting others like John the Baptist or for his own ministry, Jesus gathered with others for the public reading and teaching of Scripture. In addition, we understand uh, from ancient historians, synagogues obviously were also a place of prayer. They were a place of singing, exactly as churches are today. It was a model of what we had experienced in the church. A different shade, a different shadow, but a model of what we experience today. This passage emphasizes Jesus' reading and then his teaching among the people. The prominence, the the importance of the public reading of God's word and then the teaching of scripture, it's unmistakable. You can't get around it. It It's so prominent. Ever since Moses even constructed the tabernacle, then they did in the wilderness have a central location, a larger location, but they all came together. That's the biblical pattern. We have to ask ourselves, why? Why? Why do they come together? I'm going to ask that you give me just a moment to qualify this statement. Please don't rush to conclusions. This is a fact. Private individual devotionals have never biblically been the prominent instrument for spiritual growth. Why is that? Why is that? It's because Christians are designed by God to come together and grow together in knowledge and in understanding, not in isolation from one another. Not alone, but in community. Paul instructs Timothy and churches again, 1 Timothy 4.13, Until I come, give attention to the public reading of Scripture, to exhortation and teaching. Just like Jesus and just like Paul, public instruction was to be the emphasis of second generation Timothy and then subsequent future generations of local churches. In verse 15, Paul adds, take pains with these things, be absorbed in them, so that your progress will be evident to all, because it's public and community. Pay close attention to yourself and to your teaching. Persevere in these things, for as you do, this will ensure salvation both for yourself and for those who hear. He isn't doing this alone in a closet. 
The reading of God's word, the teaching of God's people has always occurred predominantly, not exclusively, predominantly in an open form, public style. It's a public ministry. Jesus held a public ministry. The most solemn uh, charge as given in the pastoral epistles and how to basically do church. The most solemn charge is from Paul to Timothy in the church. 2 Timothy 4, Paul writes, I solemnly charge you in the presence of God and of Christ Jesus, who is to judge the living and the dead, and by his appearing and his kingdom, preach the word. He's not talking to himself there. Preach the word. Be ready in season and out of season. Reprove, rebuke, exhort with great patience and instruction. For the time will come when they will not endure sound doctrine, but wanting to have their ears tickled, they will accumulate for themselves teachers according to their own desires. So he says to Timothy, preach the word. The principal resource uh, for reading and teaching God's word, it's to occur openly. Folks, openly, publicly, in front of the entire assembly, everybody gathered together. We learn together and we grow together. That doesn't imply, I'm not suggesting that we should not actively read and study our Bibles on our own. Absolutely not. I'm not suggesting that. But private reading was not that common, nor that essential of a component in the early church. Early Christians, they didn't have 23 copies of the Bible sitting covered in dust on their shelf at home. They didn't. If they would have had even one copy, for the greatest segment of history, uh, anyhow, most were illiterate. Most could not have read it. Written scriptures were very expensive. Paper that could be written on that was decent was rare. The copies made available to the apostles, the ones that they used, uh, they were held at the synagogues. They were maintained, they were kept at the synagogues, and then later on, of course, in local churches. And they were for the purpose of public reading and corporate teaching, which actually is essential, according to the Bible, for spiritual growth. It is. Folks, even the Bereans... So I know you're asking this question. You're all very studious, I know that. Even the Bereans, whom Paul deemed more noble than the others, right? And whom modern publishers often uphold as their model, as their, uh, as their model for private devotionals. Often you'll hear this in modern public publishers' literatures. Even the Bereans did not search the scriptures daily at home. When Acts 17, verse 10, Acts 17, verse 10, makes special note of the Bereans who searched the scriptures daily to see if the things that Paul was teaching them was so, that group remained predominantly Jewish leaders of that Berean synagogue who were searching those scrolls while Paul was teaching them together. The reason that the Bereans, as they came together and heard Paul's teaching to them, 
The reason they were more noble than those in Thessalonica is because the Thessalonians, who were a great church, by the way, as well. The Thessalonians uh, were a good church. But the Bereans were more noble because the Thessalonians accepted what Paul was preaching before them before verifying it. By comparison, the Bereans accepted what Paul was preaching in their synagogues on the basis of verifying it in the Scriptures. And as long as he was with them, as long as he was teaching them and reading to them the Scriptures, they were searching them to verify what Paul was telling them is so. The Bereans weren't provided by Paul nor presented in Scripture as the early prototypes for private home devotionals. Though you'll hear that over and over. Bereans were provided to us as models of wise people, noble people, who after hearing that good public preaching by Paul, they went the extra mile and searched the Scriptures to verify everything that was being taught by Paul. I'm not making this up. Acts 17, verse 10. Be a good Berean. Check it. Check it out. What you're hearing in your preaching, you should be going to and checking it out. I'd also like you to know this is not in any way a diatribe against private devotionals. Not in any way whatsoever. If you were here even just one week ago on a Sunday and you hadn't forsaken the assembly of the saints... You heard me exhort people to read their Bibles, even download the app to your phone and have your phone reading the Bible to you during the week. Certainly, private devotionals are very valuable. The problem arises when people use personal private devotionals as a substitute and an excuse for not joining the local assembly for teaching and preaching. That's where the problem comes. Because the the biblical model for for attaining purity in doctrine, pure doctrine, uh, it's not through private devotionals. It's not. You you can't hold yourself completely accountable in isolation. You can't. You're held accountable in, in the assembly. The biblical method for avoiding doctrinal error, doctrinal error, to avoid that public reading and teaching of Scripture where everything is out on the open for all ears to hear. Nothing is hidden in public preaching and teaching. Boy, this this message is probably going to put several very large publishers out of business, right? No, no, that won't happen. But some of the products that they push, as you read them, they will imply, be cautious of this, that spirituality, growing in spiritual faith, and in doctrine, they will imply that it's something that grows alone and it's something that grows at home. And it's not. Exclusively. They give the picture of something that you achieve on the front porch while sipping on a cup of coffee and that is the image that they want to provide. They don't generally provide an image of corporate assembly and coming together with God's people. They provide one of being alone, that appeals to the flesh. That appeals to the flesh. It applauds two of our most culturally endeared principles, individualism and autonomy. I'm not going to be accountable to anyone. 
You can't square that with Scripture. You can't square that with Scripture. The fact is, teaching of self, teaching yourself in absence of community, without community, actually contributes to doctrinal error. In the flesh, we don't self-assess, we don't diagnose well. We have too many spiritual blind spots in our personality as we read uh, because of arrogance and self-pride. This is why the New Testament doesn't supply Christians a model of self-teaching in the Bible. That's not the model that is given. Christians aren't self-taught the Bible. I'm not self-taught the Bible. Pastor Weiler's not self-taught the Bible. We aren't self-taught. You search, search back through history. It is the heretics who have self-taught themselves the Bible. When you go back and look at things that had to be corrected in the past, they came up with something on their own. Scripturally, Christians are taught by other Christians through a process that was both demonstrated by and commanded by Jesus Christ. It's known as discipleship. That's how you grow, is through discipleship in community. The predominant model of discipleship isn't even one-on-one, folks. Even Jesus with the woman at the well, it didn't illustrate one-on-one discipleship. It illustrated one-on-one evangelism. It was evangelism. And the primary model suggested for learning the scriptures through discipleship even is in an open group where questions can be asked and questions can be answered and error can be fleshed out before it becomes a problem. Cults are established one-to-one. Cults are established three-on-one, privately, behind closed doors, where no one else is present to question or to interfere with the lies that are being taught. That's what goes on in cults. That's how people are indoctrinated into cults. It's another reason pulpit ministry is prominent in Scripture so that everything is out in the open. When teaching in an open group, in an open form, it contributes to biblical accuracy and doctrinal purity through mutual accountability. That's why you always see in the New Testament the preaching of the Word of God, the speaking of the Word of God in open forms and open groups. You just can't achieve that alone. You can't achieve it alone. You can't even achieve it one-on-one. It occurs in groups. Um, I I just get fatigued sometimes of reading blogs and articles that insist you've got to get alone with God. You've got to be there so God can speak to you alone. No. What they ought to say is, you need to get your butt back in church with the community of God's people where the whole assembly is present for the celebration of Christ and the public reading and teaching of the word, where nothing is hidden. The pulpit is where we hear and learn dogma. Thus saith the Lord, out in the open. That way it can be verified by every year, everyone who hears it. Instead, what has emerged in many churches today is that dogma emerges out of small groups. Localized small groups. They become the venue 
for dogma, while the corporate assembly, by comparison, has become the place where you can believe pretty much anything that you want to believe. That's what's common today. The assembly is a place where you don't hammer things out. And when it comes to critically important doctrine, especially the critically important doctrine, the, the, the deity of Christ, the virgin birth, uh, exclusivity of Christ and salvation, these critical doctrines, many churches choose to just not bring those things up from the pulpit. That's a fact. That is a fact. Many will not bring it up, and you will hear the behavior rationalized something like this. You know, we have people coming here from many diverse backgrounds. They believe in many different things from one another. We don't want to disturb the unity. What? The unity. You've got one group of people, one small group that believes in the exclusivity of Christ. Others who are open to the universal salvation of those who haven't even heard of Christ You don't have any unity. There's no unity in that. Unity of God's people is achieved when the truth is declared openly from the pulpit for all to hear. That's why Howard Hendricks used to say at Dallas Seminary that a mist from the pulpit creates a fog in the pew. It can't be a mist. Did you get that? Everybody's like, what do you say? Huh? No, there can't be any fog in the pew. can't be any fog in the church, period, as, I'm, as far as I'm concerned. But we don't want fog. We want people to know what the Bible clearly teaches and what our church clearly believes so that we can pursue and achieve unity, folks, so we can be together. Uh, that can only be achieved from the pulpit where doctrinal positions are declared openly, where everyone is here together, uh, to which we all align to which we all become one in Christ. And the end result of that is purity of doctrine. Purity of doctrine and unity of doctrine. Everything we believe, when established corporately, what we believe together, uh, can be disseminated into the smaller discipleship groups, the auxiliary groups. And whether it is Ruth Buchanan, or Jerry, or Nathan, or Gerald, or myself, or Anthony Alberino. Um, what you learn in small groups ought to reinforce what we're learning together. It ought to be uh, auxiliary to what we learn together. And many of you have articulated to us, that's what you see. They go to the small group and they come to the large group and say, man, that's just exactly what Jerry was teaching this morning. And Ruth will come and say, man, somebody was sharing something about what I heard in another group and it lined up just exactly what we're teaching in our ladies' group. That's, what you, that's how you achieve unity. That's why the pulpit first is prominent. It always starts in the pulpit. It's either that or the church just completely abandons doctrine altogether. It's one way or the other. Um, you end up then with a universalist church where the only thing that any, everybody agrees on is that you just don't say anything is right or wrong. We'll all just get along in unity. Um... Let me close by acknowledging, though the pulpit is prominent, it is by no means exclusive. We do value 
personal devotionals. We do highly value small groups. They increase intimacy. We get to know one another better. For large churches with many groups, doctrine has been a bit of a difficulty to preserve. Some of the large groups, I know even at Denton Bible where I came out of, sometimes you had some small home groups go rogue. They had to be reeled in. Um, If I'm understanding correctly, I've heard that Alistair Begg's church, large one up there in Cleveland, uh, no longer has their home group leaders teach biblical doctrine. I don't know exactly why. Uh, I, I don't even know the timing of the messages I've listened to because they're all on online and I don't remember the date. But they probably had a couple things go off on small groups. They have to be careful. I, I don't know why. But they hold larger groups at church. They have public reading and preaching at church. And all home groups are geared entirely toward application of the Sunday message. That's not a bad idea. I mean, we forget what we learn here 10 minutes after leaving anyhow, right? Be good to come back in a small group and ask how this actually applies to us. There's nothing wrong with that. But because of our relatively small size here, and we know everybody quite well, uh, small group leaders are also uh, generally uh, members so they've sworn to uphold our statement of faith and our doctrinal statement. So I prefer, myself, that the, that the leaders of the small group prepare and teach their own material. That's my preference. We can use prepared material too. We do that with some of the Sunday school classes. It, it helps keep us online. Um, but we offer lots of small groups. Sunday morning Bible class, 915. Uh, Sunday school classes for children. Wednesday evening small groups. Men's and women's discipleships. Youth group Friday evenings, Awana, there are all kinds of opportunities. Uh, folks, we even, first Wednesday of the month, meet in people's homes. So we, we have a diversity of small groups going on. To become a person who t- regularly teaches small groups? Because people ask that. You should know this. To regularly teach small groups, we ask people to demonstrate commitment to the large group. Are you committed to the large group? Are you a faithful a tender, a faithful member of the large group. Uh, but we are looking to identify and train more in teaching and in preaching the Word of God. That is a fact. We're always trying to identify that. Um, so before I close, uh, people routinely inquire as to how a church identifies gifted teachers and trains them because we need to send them out. That's a good question. Jesus was widely acknowledged and recognized as a gifted teacher even at age 12, Luke 2.46 informs us that Jesus had a passion for spending time in the temple. Sitting in the midst of the teachers, it says, both listening to them and asking them questions. All who heard him, this was as he is a boy, all who heard him were amazed at his understanding and his answers. Surely, the synagogue in Nazareth, they were also aware of his spiritual acumen probably for years. Our passage today suggests he had the ability, uh, the news of his ability, it spread throughout the surrounding region, region was praised by all. He was in demand. He was invited to teach. When people ask how we identify those who are gifted in teaching and who are qualified teachers, we follow a strikingly similar pattern. The relationship with us usually begins as it did with Jesus in the temple, through spending time together 
and listening and asking questions. Both ways, back and forth. It's amazing what you can learn about people and about their doctrine as you listen to what they're saying and as they ask questions. Jerry Robertson, uh, who often teaches, not exclusively, exclusively, but often teaches adult Sunday morning class, he never asked to teach. He never made that request. He lived a block or so down from Rita and myself. He, he was at church regularly. He was serving uh, in ministries. He volunteered. We discovered by talking to him. He's got great doctrine. Excellent doctrine. Excellent understanding. He has great composure. The ability to stand in front of people and not get shook. Uh, he's really good. Uh, so we asked if he'd co-teach a series, and he worked his way in that way. Um, when Nathan needed a break uh, because of other demands, Jerry stepped into Sunday mornings. He had the qualifications we call fat. He was faithful, available, and teachable. Anyone who would want to aspire to teach, women's groups, men's groups, small groups, preach from the pulpit, whatever it is, if you want that, you need to fatten up. Are you faithful, available, and teachable? Being fat, that's a prerequisite for virtually all credible churches. We've got, we've got designated times for group studies. Um, you probably won't be asked to teach a group study if you've never attended a group study faithfully. How could we ask someone at 9.15 a.m. to stand up and teach everyone else when they themselves have never regularly been there? They never consistently participate. People just ask, where do you come from? We've had people come to the church. No, no kidding here. Gerald, back me up on this. I'm not making this up. They've come first Sunday and asked, can I teach? We're like, no. Who are you? Where did you come from? Is there a church in your past that's determined through your faithfulness to them? that you are competent to handle the Word of God and you possess that spiritual giftedness to teach. Most people, and we, and mo- most people don't desire a, uh, to attend a church group study regularly. They just want to teach. They don't want to go week after week after week after week and be part of the group um, and be a learner as part of the group. Folks, we need you, if you want to uh, grow in your faithfulness to church, faithfulness to Christ, we encourage you to become part of a group. If you want to teach, you have to become part of a group. We're going to encourage you in that. Are you making yourself available to your church? Are you fat? Are you faithful? Are you available? Are you teachable? People often say, I want to lead or start a New Bible study. For faithful fat people, under the right circumstances, we're not opposed to that. We're not opposed to that. But let me offer one caution that you realize that new Bible studies are only new for two or three weeks. Then they're an old Bible study. That's the truth. They become old. The sustainability of a Bible study and in even a church, is founded through faithfulness. 
through faithfulness to the work of ministry even when it's not new anymore. Even when people are no longer noticing. The question is, have you been faithful? Have you been faithful? Too sleepy on Sunday morning for Sunday school? Can't make it to any Wednesday night for any group? Not available to attend or volunteer Awana? Don't even make it to church consistently? How then can you lead anything? You can ask anyone who's ever taught or led a ministry. They can tell you leading and preparing for leading. It's a whole lot more difficult and a whole lot more time-consuming than just attending. So if you don't have the time or the passion to regularly attend, how can you lead? We need to get going, but um, if you are truly passionate... And I know some of you are. If you're truly passionate, really searching for opportunities in ministry, all types of ministry, whether it's going out with Samaritan's Purse or uh, anything else, uh, folks, we are searching for fat people. We are. We are. So let's go have lunch. Let's pray.